and welcome to another Scots Way podcast. And I'm joined today by writer, director, me, Miles Thomas. Hello, me. Hi, yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And we're here primarily to talk about your film Voyageuse, which I saw uh, at the weekend at the GFT. Um, it's a terrific film. Um, I don't know how I would describe it, but I think it'd be more interesting to hear how you describe it. Because I think we differ on that, so... <laughs> <laughs> Aye, well, you're not the only person to have described it as a documentary. In fact, um, it was described by Alan Hunter, the co-director of the Glasgow Film Festival, as, as the same. He thought it was a documentary. And I said to him, I'm sorry, Alan, but I have to disagree because it's a documentary in the same way that Raging Bull is a documentary about Jake LaMotta. Ah, I suppose so, yeah. If you see it like that. Yeah. I've always maintained it's an, an author piece of work mm-hmm. because I wrote a screenplay. I sat for years and wrote the screenplay and agonised over it. So, uh, for, And also I had it performed by the great Shan Phillips, a legendary actress. Absolutely. And so, you know, for it to be described as a documentary is for me a bit of a letdown because I argued with Alan about this. Yeah. You know, saying, and you know, there's several people have come at it like that. I think what it is is because some of it, you know, is archive based. It's based in, you know, when you first sit down and watch it, you see like rostrum photographs and you see bits of archive film. So it gives initially every impression of this is, oh, the chronological telling of a woman's life story. Yes. But in fact, it kind of turns into something different. Yeah. I guess that maybe for me, it's almost like a direct response to there not being an actor or actors involved on screen. You know, as you say, that's a fantastic voiceover by Sean Phillips. Um, so that makes you... Th- and what we see, um, although I now know it's, it's not uh, your mother-in-law's house, but it's made to feel like it's been shot in her house and we see um, bits of old um, camera footage of her life. Am I right to say that? Aye. Well, the very first um, shot, once the film kicks in after the pre-title sequence, is her as a baby. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was fascinating when, obviously, I'd known about this archive's existence. In fact, um, before Erica died, we had found in her mother's house a whole pile of 16mm films yeah. and we had no idea what was on them so I took them to the British Film Institute uh, archive and said could you just tell me what's on these films and they came back and said oh these are really interesting it's 16mm film that was shot in various European countries in the interwar period in the 1930s right. and they identified the films um, as being dating from 1929 right up until the mid-1950s. So that was the film that they restored. It took them two years to do that. So because I have the exclusive use of them, Mm -hmm. um, I let the BFI keep the original films um, and in return they um, did me a digibita copy, which Mm -hmm. I've since then put on another format. So I had that available to me. And plus there were other films dating from the 60s into the early 70s. Um, that belonged to Erica, uh, my mother-in-law, or my late mother-in-law, um, that I had transferred as well. Mm-hmm. And that was just ordinary family films. Is it quite unusual to find just like family footage that we would have on, on phones or, you know, or video from that time? Well, that's a fascinating thing because these days, even before somebody's born, they have ultrasound scans of like, a baby. Yeah, sure. And what you've got now is everybody's life is recorded in minute detail all the time. Mm-hmm. And so you have an archive of, 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 a huge archive of stuff, because I'm talking about tens of thousands of photographs as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On top of that, and that's a whole other story. But what was interesting to me is to have that back then must have been something of a huge privilege. Because I know from my own family's point of view, I could never have done this about my own family. Because um, my husband's family were were very privileged. They were part of the Hungarian bourgeoisie, Uh you know, of the late 19th um, century, early 20th century. And when I think about my own family in Glasgow, very ordinary working class family, there, there are virtually no photographs. Yeah. In fact, there isn't even a single photograph of me as a baby. Yeah. So to have access to that, but of a different period, it does make you wonder, what are people doing 
with all of the stuff that they are documenting now yeah. about their own lives and their family, friends. Where is all that going to go? Yeah. Now, we should start, I think, about how the, the film began. You say, sadly, your mother-in-law passed away and you almost became the executor of the estate. Is that the way of putting it? Well, I sort of... Um, what happened was, um, Erica, when Erica died in 2004, um, she left, like, she had two sons, my husband and his younger brother, Dan. And Dan lives in North Wales. And he wasn't really that interested in what was left behind. Mm -hmm. And on her death, we went, returned to the house. And I knew for years that this house could have done me a right good clearing out. <laughs> and every attempt I made to clear out the house, she resisted. Yeah. She got very, very upset. What had happened in the interim as well is she had um, moved her mother into a nursing home. Um, well, initially she moved her mother up from Croydon to Edinburgh and she lived with her for a couple of years then. She moved her into a nursing home. But on that house move, she also had all of her stuff. Oh, wow. And then when her mother died, she decided that she wanted to move back to this one home in Edinburgh where she believed that she had the happiest times of her life, which was already full of furniture. Yeah. Because she'd been letting it out for years to students from Edinburgh University. So when she moved back to um, her house in Calton Hill, um, a very, very fine house, huge house, but with three houses worth of furniture. Yeah. When we went in, you just, you know, we were faced with an unbelievable amount of stuff. Yeah. I mean, stuff like you wouldn't believe. There was boxes upon boxes upon boxes, four broken televisions, five broken hoovers, all dishwasher that was all rusty, more rust than the white. Yeah. That kind of thing that she held on to. And also a lot of stuff that pertained to her studies. She'd never let a single thing go. Wow. So you had all this, and <laughs> you said there's photographs as well as the footage. Yeah, there was all, all the photographs, there was all the documents, there was everything from her her wedding gifts, her mother's, even her mother's true. So I've still, I'm still going through this stuff. Wow. And, um, and your, our immediate reaction was, Let's get rid of a lot of this. And I swear, we took, we filled six looting vans worth of stuff <laughs> and pretty much got a ban from the local dump in Edinburgh. And we had complaints from the neighbours. I mean, in the first day, I filled over 200 bin bags. Wow. Just off stuff that wasn't, wasn't even fit to give to charity shops. Yeah, sure, sure. Just everything. Um, and I think, in retrospect, I probably acted a wee bit too hastily because... It would have been nice to take more time. Sure. It was just that immediate reaction. But if you're faced with that, kind of, <laughs> oh, of stuff. Oh, unfeasible amount of stuff. Yeah. You know, you see these programmes about people who hoard. It maybe wasn't as quite as extreme as that, but it was just massive volume of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's where we that's where we began. So, when did you decide that? Uh, because it's an extraordinary life that you tell in the mm -hmm. film, and I think it might have been an unexpected one for you as well. What becomes yeah. um, uncovered? Um, when did you decide that this was a story that you didn't want to just kind of keep in the family that you wanted to tell? Well, initially the plan was we were going to clear Erica's house, and um, Owen's brother had was really he really pushed for us to put the house up for sale. And we reckoned that, you know, in order to get, you know, the best price for the house, it really needed a lot of work done to it. Mm -hmm. So we, um, we, we agreed to take on the work. And, um, and what happened as a result of that was after 12 weeks, I realised it was worthwhile hanging on to the house. I became quite fond of the place. Yeah. My husband was never so keen. Owen was never right. so keen on the place because he grew up there, you know, like from he was a wee baby. Mm -hmm. And so, but he never had any great attachment to oh, the place. So um, after twelve weeks, I, you know, I persuaded him. I said, "Look, let's just hang on to this and wait and see what happens." And I sold my flat in Glasgow, and we took out another mortgage, and um, that enabled us to pay off Owen's brother. Mm -hmm. And so that was us there. So by two thousand and five, I realised going through Erica's stuff and being a bit haunted, but by living in her house. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There was more of a story. It became apparent there was more of a story there as I went through all of the documents because she had this habit of writing things in bits of paper. Yeah. And I was finding the odd scrap of paper with notes written about her childhood and her memories of being bullied by her brother yeah. and her mother and missing her father. 
and and the thing was is I was I, mean, I knew Erica for eleven years, but yeah. I didn't um, I didn't realise it very much about her past life. She was quite unknowable. She was you know if you met her you think very bookish, old academic lady, quite eccentric, you know, not really given to talking that much or talking in a personal way. She lacked all empathy. Yeah, you would go and see her and she would bring you. But books and bits of paper and say, you might be interested in this yes. and place it in front of you. She would never say, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah. She was one of these type of <laughs> women, um, God love her. And um, so that it was. So what I found was this woman I thought I knew for 11 years, I, I didn't know very much about. And it was only when I went through all of that stuff, a story started to emerge yeah. about this other person and what her fears were. And particularly her diaries. Um, she kept a diary for decades, and it, it made for quite painful reading, yeah, which we'll absolutely. maybe talk about later. I mean, one of the, the notes you said that was important was you found a bag with four lipsticks in it, which, and a note which said, "When did I stop using lipstick?" Aye. that's on the poster. I think. Well, that was the thing that triggered it for me in a way. You know, like thinking, "Is there a film in this?" And I didn't really know how it come at it. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of out of love with the idea of making films, you know, because I had quite a bad experience in my second feature and I came out a lot of disappointment. And, and you know, what had happened the year before Erica died was my own mother died. Right. <coughs> and so that kind of, you know, brought home to me, you know, what am I doing with myself? Yeah, you know, sure. trying to make a career for myself as a filmmaker in Scotland mm-hmm. was mission impossible. Yeah. It seemed to me I'd just completed quite a big budget film, um, a second feature which was called Solidaire. Mm-hmm. And um, it'd been picked up by a distributor, but it was only when we had the gala screening, a big premiere at the Edinburgh Film Festival, the distributor informed me that they were not going to go ahead and release it. Three people in the company had dropped out the same week. Oh, okay. So I was in a, quite a bad place sure, yeah. anyway, plus my mother dying. Uh-huh. And then later that year, um, Owen's grandmother died. She features in the film, yes, yes. Vera. She's quite a prominent presence in yeah. the film. And so when Erica died, and we'd, I'd spent all of these months in the house, that, and I had this idea that I want to tell a story. I want to tell, it, was ne- it wasn't necessarily going to be a film at that point. Mm-hmm. I wrote a short story called The Snagging List. Right. And it was about her struggle to move back into that house because she'd had builders in. Ah, okay. And the builders had gone bust. And it was all oh. about this woman's nightmare of trying to take possession of her house again. And it started as that. And then from there, it morphed into a screenplay for um, a convention. What would have been a conventional film? Mm-hmm. And I just called it Erica. And it was about this doughty old lady based on my mother-in-law who took in lodgers, which actually was the truth because that's what she did do in her right. later years. And I sat on that for a long time and then nothing happened. Yeah. Well, you talk about the relationship between her and other members of her family and that's kind of where it begins with her as a baby, as you say, mm-hmm. and her mother, in a weird way, comparing her to Hitler. Aye. <laughs> so this was because she was born in the day that... Well, she was born in the same year that Hitler came to power. Yeah. And I made a point of that. Now, that's me taking yes, license I, there. I know, I know. What <laughs> but it was, the fact, it was the fact that she was born in 1933 and I thought, what, what were the other significant events of 1933? And I list them in the film. Um, but the principle among them was this idea that Hitler came to power. And that was really triggered by the way I saw Erica behave with her mother when yes. she was trying to care for her. Yeah. And quite often... Um, old Vera, the old granny, um, who was suffering from dementia, as is related in the, in the film, would turn round to Hitler and go, Yavol! You know, in her, in her old East European accent, because she was a Hungarian, but yeah. she spoke five languages. In fact, um, you know, the, the main language in the family was German. They, right. they spoke German right, to okay. each other in the family. And so she's... And with Erica behaving, trying to behave like a sergeant major... And the old and caught on to this and said, oh, yavel to everything that she said. <laughs> and so it became a bit of a running joke, and that was, I, I used that in the film. Because I think a lot of the film is almost about the, the disappointments as well that she had throughout her life. You say that she was kind of bullied by her brother, um, and when you find out that her brother goes to Cambridge before she goes mm-hmm. to Cambridge, 
and does very well and then she doesn't quite do as well and there's a lot of that kind of yeah. feeling that she's maybe not had the life that she thought she was going to have. But you've got to set against um, this against the huge privilege. Yeah, yeah. You know, because, oh, no, absolutely. because I was determined in making this because, you know, the story is that the family fled from Hungary stroke Romania because they were, you know, they were actually based in Romania and um, Erica's father um, had his work permit um, taken away and what he did was he went to Gdansk and via, he went from Gdansk to Hull and he arrived in Hull on the very day that the ports were closed to aliens mm -hmm. in 1938 and because the portmaster hadn't opened his post that day, Bob got in. And so he got in and sent for the rest of the family. But I didn't want to make it into, oh, here's um, a Hungarian Jewish family fleeing the No, Nazis. no, no, no. That, that, it's <laughs> not that at all. It's but, not, no. Uh, it would have been easy to go down that road. And to, you know, to be honest, I could have made it, you know, very much how we fled the Nazis, how the rest of the family were went to Bergen-Belsen, how some of them escaped to America. I could have gone down that road. But for me, this was not so much a story of Erica or her family. This, for me, goes much, much deeper. In fact, I've described it as a psychobiography mm -hmm. in the sense that it's not about the woman's life, it's about a woman's state of mind. Yes. Because Aye. the film itself takes place over in one day, but where she looks back over the past 40 years of her life. Yeah. And so it's very much of what's going on in her mind, the memories that are triggered by, you know, just existing in this house on a very significant day in her life, which becomes apparent further down the line in the film. Uh, I mean, it very much is about the kind of state of mind and the, the subjects it looks on, like um, ageing, you know, um, the, uh, the idea of looking at the past, the idea of uncovering family secrets. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hinted but never fully set out that there's some espionage or possibility of espionage going on there. Uh -huh. that, uh, and even the fact of what her father did for a living and how that was seen as a... Because he... It was extracting sugar, but not from cane, is that right? From beet, yeah. Yeah, because the, the sugar yeah. cane wasn't being brought into the country uh, at that time. That's right, because of the war, obviously. The, you know, the, the Brit, um, Britain couldn't import cane sugar from its col colonies because of the war. Um, but to rewind it back yeah. a wee bit on that, because, you know, you covered a lot yeah, of ground sure. there. <clears throat> um, Erica's, you know, family came, you know, as I say, they came from Hungary. But it was while I was clearing the house, it occurred to me, I thought, this is not the story of somebody who just packed a few suitcases and fled. Mm -hmm. This family were, I don't know how they managed it, but they managed to get all of their possessions and all of their money out in time. Yeah. At a time where it must have been quite tough for a lot of families yeah. to do that. Because they came, I mean, among the possessions that I found in the house when I cleared it was Erica's own cot when she was a baby. Ah, wow. You know, there was, a, there was an Afghani carpet, huge carpet, that had come, obviously, from um, Hungary, Romania. And so all the family possessions came with them. All of those films that had been yes, shot yes. during the 30s, somehow they managed to get these through. Yeah. And it wasn't like they came... Um, and they were like holed up in one room somewhere. Yeah. They bought a you know a new build villa in a suburb of Derby. They had a car. They had a phone. They had you know yeah. you know all the material things that my family struggled to have in the nineteen seventies for yeah. goodness sake. And this was in nineteen thirty eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was quite intrigued by that, and I'm thinking, well, how come Bob gets such an easy passage? Yeah. And one of the reasons Bob got a passage to England was he'd set up. A job for himself. He'd already been in England um, in the early 1930s because Bury St Edmunds is a centre in the UK for beet sugar production and to this day there's a set of equations called the Eisner equations which is the formula for converting both cane and beet into sugar. Uh -huh. um, so you know he's got his own place in you know in, in, in history of sugar manufacturing. But it did, you know, it has, it has bothered me about, well, how was, how was it so easy? And then yeah. going through the documents, I also find a letter that was addressed to the War Office written by Vera, Erica's mother, mm -hmm. basically offering her services because she was a keen photographer and she had all these photographs and film of, 
you know, various locations throughout Europe um, that she thought might have been of strategic interest. So I don't know whether or not there was an exchange there. And there's another guy who features in the story that I refer to, and he's a very interesting character called Tom Polgar. Mm -hmm. And Tom Polgar was a cousin of Erica's mother. And he actually became one of the founder members of the CIA. Mm -hmm. So he is amazing. He's he's in the story as well. So there's this whole mix. Um, It it also occurred to me, and it occurred to Erica, that the kind of work her brother was involved in, you know, there was a question mark over it because on the completion of his PhD, um, he, he went to work for the Institute of Mines in Sheffield. And at that time, their principal work was involved in building underground bunkers mm-hmm. because of the Cold War. But then he went off to the United States and uh, worked for Bell Labs on who knows what. Yeah. We don't know what kind yeah. of... I know that there were several patents taken out for um, work that he was involved in. But when I went to shoot in the actual place where he worked, um, in a place called Hazlitt. It's a massive, massive building built by Eero um, Saren in 1959. It's amazing. Two million square foot structure. The guys who were guiding me through the building said, nobody really knows what went on here. <laughs> and wow. I thought, and that was a recurring theme throughout the, when I was shooting because when I went to Orfordness, of course, mm-hmm. following um, Erica, because Erica ended up working at Orfordness for a time but even on the trip over, I met the, the science photographer in residence. And again, he said to me, nobody really knows what happened here. That's incredible. So you've got yeah. all of this intrigue surrounding... Because, I mean, surrounding back to the idea of, of everyone looking at every, you know, every aspect of their lives on phones or online or whatever, the idea that there's buildings and places and no one knows what happened there is astonishing now. I d- yeah, I know it's hard to believe now, but I'm sure it still goes on. I'm sure that there's um, several bases yeah, around the country. Know. Because even when I was um, shooting at Orford Ness, there was a presence on that on that, that, that little spit of land. Um, and I noticed that Babcocks have got an involvement there. Now, who knows what they're up to on that bit of land. But I noticed that when you look on Google Earth, you cannot see what's there, wow. and it, there's nothing on the maps. Yeah, um, it's a, that's a very interesting site, but we're kind of no, getting, yeah, we're we're getting a wee bit. We're getting a wee that's what the film does. But, I think yeah, it, at least you do these paths. Absolutely, because you, you want to yeah. you want to go and say, well, how did he start the CIA or like, how did the? But I mean, but it's all there. But yeah. I mean, the way I spoke, well, when I spoke to the audience the other night during the Q and A, and the way I described it was. I found all of these significant dots, the pieces of evidence. What I had to do was I had to find the dashes between them, which meant I went into research for a good couple of years before I started yeah. even writing this new screenplay. Sure. Because eventually what happened was after attempting to do this as a conventional film, several things happened. Um, like I moved back to Glasgow. I was involved in a project called The Devil's Plantation. Right. We'll talk about that a wee bit yeah, later. Sure. But, you know, my takeaway from making The Devil's Plantation was I found a way of making films that was entirely within my gift. Right. Which didn't involve sitting about waiting and somebody funding me. Yeah. I could work with exactly just what I had to hand, which was I have some kit, I have an idea, I can write it. As long as I can sustain myself and pay my bills, Mm -hmm. then there's nothing to stop me going out and just shooting stuff. And doing it in the most basic way. But for me, it's about the storytelling. Yeah as long as I can get the story told. And in a way, rather than making films where conventionally it's two guys in a room talking to each other, yeah. you have to come at it in a much more interesting way. Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about how the film is structured, because <coughs> you know, you've got the voiceover, but apart from that, everything else has been shot by you, the, the, the sound, and it's all you, uh, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I describe it as a handmade film. Um, <laughs> Um, for want of a better term yeah. um, what happened was uh, well I, I, I wrote a very very long script in fact what you see on screen is less than half of what I wrote oh, yeah. I had to really kill my darlings which yeah. was awful yeah. but it had to be done um, to make you know a film of a length that people were prepared to watch yeah. um, and on top of that um, you know I did 
all of the roles, when you watch a film and you see the end credits and you see these hundreds of names and you just think, everybody there had a job, everybody there got a paycheck. Well, on my film, um, what I did, the only assistance I really had was from my good mate, George Geddes. Yes. And George came in with me when I was shooting at my neighbour's house because what I did was I had my neighbour's house stand in for Erica's house. Right. And I dressed it because I used to be a production designer at the BBC in London. So uh, I resurrected all my old chops and using Erica's stuff um, and having had permission from my neighbour, I photographed all my neighbour's house, carefully took down everything and packed it away and replaced it all with Erica's belongings to create that same environment. Yeah. And it was a godsend that I got that house yeah. because that house became the spine of my film ah, because it's, it's a place that I keep returning to. And, and it was a gift because the house has not been touched in 40, 50 years. So it was perfect as a stand-in because obviously the Edinburgh house had been sold. Or, yeah. So because uh, you know you mentioned when you were at the Edinburgh house, you felt like kind of ghosts in the house, and that's kind of what it feels like watching yeah. the film as you go round the door Aye. handles, and the, it's like there's a presence. There. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I'm quite often because George shot with me for a few days, and then he had to go off for another job. And, I was, and because it's directly across the street from me, it was the best location I've ever worked in, in terms of commute. Um, and I would be there at night time on my own, and all you would hear was the ticking of a clock or the tick, tick, tick of the boiler going off suddenly, and yeah. you'd jump out yeah, your skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, being in the house alone, um, just it was it was a really nice experience, but it did, it did give me the heebies at times. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, since you mentioned <laughs> The Devil's Plantation, can you say a little bit about that? Aye, well, The Devil's Plantation came about as a result of um, an award I got. Um, I'm going to be dead honest with you. I was absolutely pratted in 2007 because I was living in Erica's house. I didn't really have any gainful employment, neither did my husband. And I was like a phone call away for a call centre job. Yeah, sure. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Scottish filmmakers, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Aye, we don't, you love it. Um, and, and and so w what happened was I applied for the very, very last year, the Scottish Arts Council ran this thing called Creative Scotland Awards. Right. And I toyed with the idea for ages that I shouldn't be going for that. But I had an idea or half an idea of a project that I could, and I thought, why not? I'll just sling it in and mm -hmm. see what happens. And to my astonishment, I got, the, I got the prize. And it's one of Europe's richest art prizes. It's... it's Thirty grand. Right. The only downside to that was the Scottish Arts Council said to me, "Well, we're not going to let you make a film." And I thought, "Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> how no?" And they, they said, um, "Well, architects and filmmakers we deem as working in a commercial sphere." And I'm saying, "So you're not going to let me actually practice within my own field? Are you insane?" Yeah. And I thought, I'll need to come up with another idea. So what I pitched to them was I pitched the idea of an interactive website. Okay. And this was in 2007, and they got all excited. Oh, interactive yeah, website. Yeah, yeah. No, all things digital. And I said, aye, but here's the thing. I'm going to embed 66 short films within it. And they went, all right. So The Devil's Plantation is really based on a book called Glasgow Secret Geometry, mm -hmm. the city's oldest mystery by a guy called Harry Bell who wrote and self-published it in 1984. And it's become something of a, a cult book yeah. among certain people because its premise is that Glasgow is laid out to this ancient and occult pattern. It's and that, a fascinating idea. It's a really great idea. And when I was interviewed after winning the prize, I described it as a 10 pence Da Vinci code. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually is underpinned by his years and years of research. He believed that Glasgow was laid out to this pattern and it, was, it wasn't um, sort of new age you know, nonsense. Um, he had a sort of logical explanation for it and he came up with this thing called PCLs, which was prehistoric communication lines, um, based on the fact that when these ancient tribes had settled in the Clyde Valley 6,000 years ago or so during ne Neolithic times, you, know, you could see your neighbour maybe 12 miles away and you'd be setting off beacon fires in the night and so you would be aware of each other. And gradually, you would drive tracks towards each other. Right. So these ancient trackways became a system of communication lines. Some people associate it with like 
ley lines yeah, and, sure. and Harry does refer to ley lines because a lot of these lines do align perfectly because it takes four or more sites to make a lay mm-hmm. to make a lay line right. and so I was fascinated because I came across a book and that, to me it read like a detective novel I loved it Yeah. and what had happened you know some years before and it was such a coincidence when I was moving house back from Edinburgh to Glasgow to begin work on this project I came across a folder that I'd picked up years ago when me and my, my late brother were having a look around Leverdale Hospital right the old part of the hospital before it was converted into flats. Uh-huh. Now, I come from Pollock, and at the end of my road in Pollock was Leverdale Psychiatric Hospital, mm-hmm. and as kids, we grew up with this thing about, you know, there's a man escaped from yeah. Hockey, and he's in the woods. <laughs> and we'd be, ah, terrified. And so it always drew me, this place, because there was so many, you know, childhood memories sure. and legends based around it. So me and my brother did a bit of urban exploration in there and I'd found this folder which had moved house with me and it was now moving back to Glasgow with me and inside this folder, the folder was labelled visits after discharge and in the folder were case notes of people who'd been released from Leverndale under Care and the Community Act in the early 90s and among these notes was the case notes of a woman called Mary Ross mm-hmm. um, and it seemed from her notes that she was always disappearing off and she would take these long walks around Glasgow. And it seemed to me the places where she was often picked up were the same places that Harry Bell had visited. Oh, wow. So I saw a huge coincidence in this. The whole project was filled with coincidence. Yeah. And so I, I was quite fascinated by this. So using both Harry and Mary, because Harry had a quest to try to find if there was any sense to this pattern. Mary had absolutely no quest. She was chaotic in her meanderings. Yeah. So I thought, I'm going to bring these two together and see what I make of it. And I'm like a third character in it. Well, I'm the silent character. So for two and a half years, I went on the road visiting all of the sites that Harry and Mary went to, which were often the same place. So quite often I would make two films from... Well, the same film from two different points of view. And I made this interactive map of Glasgow where if you get the app version that I did after the website... You can go on this journey, but you get to decide what route you take, but it's by random. Right. And so people are... It takes about three or four hours to get round the whole app, if you do it that way. But what happened was in 2013, my husband presented me with a fait accompli, and he said, I've been in touch with the Glasgow Film Festival, and I've told them that you've got a feature-length version of The Devil's Plantation. And I was like, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> I don't need that right now. And I had six weeks to, to, put put, to put the film together. So what I did was I got two very good friends of mine, Kate Dickey and um, Gary Lewis, the mm-hmm. actors, yeah. to come and narrate. Not that they're being the characters of Mary and Harry, but they're voicing what I had written as a text, which accompanies the original website. And so that was The Devil's Plantation. And people, you know, people who come to it, and what I like is when people come to it by pure chance, because yes, a lot yeah. of people did. Yeah. And they'd get in touch with me and they'd say, I've just been in this site and it's absolutely amazing. And so what happened was by the time I, you know, I got the film made and I made it by the skin of my teeth, yeah. I basically finished it the night before it screened. <laughs> so even the people at the Glasgow Film Festival had they seen it. They, I mean, they, t- they took it sight unseen. Wow. Because yeah. it, it was me. Ha <laughs> um, And so it sold out. Brilliant. The screen sold out. And I went, I watched the last 20 minutes for the projection booth and even the four usherettes were all stood at the back and they'd sat, well, they stood there for 93 minutes, 40 seconds watching this thing, glued to it, hypnotised by it. And people just seem to really like it. And is it still all available? Well, it's it's available on Vimeo. Um, It never got a release because it was never really intended as a, like any of my films, not really intended for, like, as a commercial proposition. Yeah, sure. As I say, you know, after I'd done Solid Air and thinking that I'm on my way to a real career as a filmmaker, and it never quite happened, um, I just took stock after that. And it's a great thing, actually, because my takeaway from Making Devil's Plantation gave me everything I needed to know about how possible it was to do Voyageurs, but do it in a much bigger scale, do it in a, you know, a much better way, yeah. narratively, and in terms of its making technically. Yeah. So I'm really glad that I'm in that place now where I've 
I've kind of chanced upon this way of telling a story visually, um, and within the you know the, the format of a feature film, you know the ninety hundred minute feature film, and so I'm really satisfied now that I can go on this and is do. Your style of filmmaking. This is I've landed on something that I'm completely in control of, and yeah. I'm dead happy with it. It means I don't need to engage with an industry that's so hard. To, but it, I mean, I've got friends who are spending five and seven, ten. There's one guy who spent 13 years just to raise a modest amount of money to make his first feature. Yeah. And I'm not talking millions here, I'm yeah. talking about a few hundred thousand. Okay, it's a lot of money by anybody's yes, standards. But, over that but, time, for, but for film, over that period of time, you're thinking, why are you bothering? Mm -hmm. And it made me really question about why I make films. What, what am I doing this for? Um, and it begs a lot of questions about, you know, why we have the Scottish film industry that we do have, yeah. where there's such a low level um, of Indigenous production. You know, it does make me wonder why people can't just pick up what I've done and use it as an example. Ironically, my very first feature, which was a wee self-financed thing, mm -hmm. which was um, critically really successful, won loads of awards back in 2000. I did that, and Film London and the Irish Film Board um, got me to come and talk to them about how I managed to do this right. film on the budget, on what they call a micro-budget. Sure. And and they picked up, you know, like, they, they, they scrutinised my line-by-line -line budget for this mm -hmm. and said, so that's how you do it. That's a way of doing it. And so they've, they both adopted it. Um, film London um, built the microwave scheme on it. Wow. And the Irish Film Board went on to do their own, you know, micro-budget yeah, micro film scheme, which was great, because it gave people a chance at least to break into features, because what you've got is you've got all these people running about making short films. Yeah. Nobody can progress to features. Nobody can get a career, it seems to me, or it's really, really difficult yeah. to get any kind of career in features. I mean, I listened to your podcast with my mate Peter Mackey yeah. Burns, uh -huh. and I, I listened to Peter talking about the difficulty that he has and he had a very acclaimed short film, mm -hmm. you know, like Berlin Film Festival yeah, Prize winner. Um, and Milk, you know, it took him, I don't know, another 10 years or so yeah. to get his first feature off the ground. And it wasn't like Daphne was like zillions of dollars. No, no. It was a fairly modestly budgeted feature film. Yeah. And so you do wonder about, what, so what is it you want to do here? Do you want to make films or do you want to sit in the pub talking about making films? Yeah. Or do you want to become a supplicant to a dysfunctional system of funding? I think that's really interesting. And I think more and more I'm talking to people who are not just filmmakers, but musicians or writers and the old ways of doing it, whether it's publishing or whether it's um, record companies, they're finding that, no, we're just going to do this ourselves. We're going to do yeah. this in a different way and find out what we want to do. Well, well, crowdfunding has become a very, you know, like, you know, it's, you know, it's in the air. Everybody's trying to crowdfund everything these yeah. days, especially, but especially in those fields of music or film or what have you, you know, um, everybody's having a go at it. What you don't hear about there is the failures. Yes. What you, what you don't hear about are the people who fail to reach their target. Yeah. Where do they go? Um, and and so that's it. I've never I've never tried crowdfunding personally. I think there's a place for it. Mm -hmm. I think it depends at what stage of your project you want to start crowdfunding for. Yeah. I think it's really good these days to build awareness of the project and to build a potential audience out yeah. of it. I think it's got other uses rather than just the making of the work itself. Yeah, because I think you've got to find out if people if what you're making if people actually want it. Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise there's no point. And doing it, you know, even if you get funded, they're um, out there, nobody sees it. Well, that's that's an interesting thing because last week, week or so ago, I was approached by Jamie Dunn at Skinny to talk about, um, you know, because I had these screens coming up at the Glasgow Film Theatre and what was my take on um, the whole system of distribution now? Do these event screens where you have Q and A's? Does does that really work for people? Uh -huh. um, you know, what is it like being a filmmaker here in twenty eighteen? And and I would say, you know, there's no difference for being a filmmaker in 2018 than there was when I did my first feature back in 2000. That's interesting. I was going to ask you that. So really, because yeah. I mean, the only thing that's happened for me that affects me really is um, two things. 
One is technically everything's improved. Yes. You know, um, from when I did it, because I did the first UK, well, the UK's first end-to-end digital feature, and that was in terms of acquisition as well as exhibition, because I was the first person ever to have a, a film digitally screened in the right. UK as well. Um, and so there we are, that's a, you know, my place in history. But so where the technology's improved and it's come down in price and it's much more accessible than it ever was, I'm not seeing everybody run about the streets suddenly making films. No. Um, well, maybe they are, but you'll only find them in YouTube, and that's a ghetto. Yeah. Vimeo's a ghetto, yeah. because anybody can upload their stuff there. Yeah. So where availability is one thing, visibility is something else entirely, I would say. Because it is so hard to somehow get yourself noticed out of that morass of stuff that's sure, online. That's the most difficult thing to do, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so... Um, you know, what you're hearing about now. Because, I mean, you think about uh, these Hollywood blockbusters or these franchise film superhero movies. They're spending as much on marketing these movies mm. as they are in making them. Because people aren't rushing to the cinema to see film stars in funny costumes. Because quite often, these are cast with fairly unknown actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you're seeing on screen is, I, you know, so, so it's not like the name above the title that's a draw. <laughs> what you're looking at is, you're looking at effects, you know, grillions of dollars being spent in effects. Lots of hype before, before, during, and after it's making. Yeah. So typically, a Hollywood blockbuster marketing budget now is insane. It's a lot, hundred and fifty yeah. million dollars. Yeah. And here we are in Scotland. <laughs> yeah. You know, and everybody say, "Why can't we make superhero movies?" You know, I had an argument in Twitter with Mark Miller of all people uh-huh. recently yeah, yeah. saying. Aye, well, that's all right if you just want to make films, you know, like about you know, superheroes and you've got grounds of dollars today, but we don't do that here. Yeah, aye. You know, it'd be nice to think there's a plurality about what the kind of films that we can we can make in this country, but get real, yeah. you know, the, there's, uh, the successor to the film arm of Creative Scotland was launched only last week. Yes. Screen Scotland. Uh-huh. And, you know... Good luck to them because, you know, they're, I know that they're trying, but really I think the emphasis is on trying to attract incoming productions. That's the problem. Rather yeah. than funding the talent here and trying to retain the talent here, you know. And yeah. I, I don't even want to get started because I don't engage with the public funders anymore because yeah. I don't particularly like going to meetings. Sure. And the way I work now is I don't need to go to a single meeting. I just decide I'm making this. How am I going to do it? And I put my energy into coming up with the creative solutions that are not going to cost money. Yeah. So I've, you know... Well, it's like even what you were saying when you won the, um, the award mm-hmm. uh, for the Devil's Plantation and well, they told you, well, this is what we don't want you to do. Now you don't have to worry about that. So no, well, this, uh, never mind what you want me to do. Mm-hmm. I can do what I want to do. And you know, Yeah, as long as I'm prepared to forfeit things like a starry cast yeah. or the trappings, like having a big train set to play with technically, or having a massive crew. Yeah. I don't need that. I actually think it's really liberating, you know, doing it the way that I do it, which is, I will go out on the road. I mean, for instance, in Voyages, I'm trying to work out how many days I actually spent out shooting. It was quite a few, but it was spread over two and a half years. Now, with the best will in the world, and even with a budget, I can't keep a crew in standby for two and a half years. Yeah, sure, of course. I can't have, I can't retain the continuity of the people that I would want to work with. So, as desirable as it might be. And it goes back to something you said at the beginning, which is for you, the important thing is the story. Yeah. And so you find a way to tell the story. Every time. Every time. And even when I did Voyages, I mean, I did that film all back to front. I mean, I started shooting before I'd written it, and I started editing before I finished shooting. And it's, you know, it sounds like a bonkers way to work, but actually working organically like that, you sometimes arrive at a better solution than you might have had you mapped the whole thing out and nailed it all down and pre-visualised it to the nth degree. You know, I yeah. quite I quite like having that sort of fluidity in sure. the process. That's the way that I'm working now. Yeah, going back to your very first um, film and you said you were the first person to do it digital end-to-end. So why did you decide that that was the way you were going to do it? Because nobody would fund me to make a movie. Uh, it was the only way. Um, I was a serial rejectee of Scottish screen <laughs> and all the other various film schemes gone at the time. I remember it well. In fact, I got so hacked off that um, I went to Berlin and lived there for two and a half years. I got a fellowship in film, I think, called the NIPCO programme. 
I just get really tired of um, every scheme being oversubscribed. Mm-hmm. And I had a very, very bankable CV at that time because yeah. I had, um, I'd, for years, I'd worked at BBC in London. And I'd moved from design into production. And then I came out of the BBC, I went freelance. I worked for a number of years making very high-end music videos for the major record labels. And then I moved into commercials. So don't be fooled by this accent. I've, <laughs> I've managed a crew of 100-plus in New York, you know, and, or in Prague or Barcelona or wherever. Uh, you know, I'm not just like some... Ned who's wife Paul. But even in, even in spite of having that, well, I mean, there was always a thing that I said when I moved back from London. I moved back from working on the BBC in London and I was loaned out for a while to BBC Scotland. Um, the year, God, it's come back, ancient history. Um, Glasgow became the European city of culture in 1990 and suddenly BBC Scotland was awash with music and arts money. Yeah. And because I'd been making music and arts documentaries at the BBC in London... I was a shoe-in to come back here, and I remember the first day walking in the door, and I went, hiya, I'm your new director up for London, and they just looked at me, like, oh no, Ned Bird, alert. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, do you think that stopped you getting funded? Oh, listen, I think that, that, well, as I say, you know, I always used to think working in London, because I would always get picked on for being the only Scottish person, talking Scottish person, you know, Glaswegian, what have you, but when I moved up here, I I realised that um, class trumps that that race, if yeah, you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Class trump race in, uh, in my book because you know coming from a very normal background, ordinary working class background in Glasgow, to have parlayed into that in a career in London, um, you know, and then coming back here, it was very interesting the way that people treated me. Yeah. Um, I was always seen. It was funny because I came back and I was I was an outsider. Yeah, sure. It was a very very strange thing that happened. Um, so I was quite glad to hand in my resignation at that point. <laughs> Never look back. Well, absolutely. So, I mean, you started up Elemental Films, that's your company. I started that in 1995, but that was really just to create a legal entity right. that allowed me to apply okay. for money. So that was simple. That that has to be avoided. Yeah, yeah you, have, you have to have some kind of status. Um, and, um, it's a it's a precondition of yeah. funding to have that status, and that was and what had happened was we'd applied. Well, me and my partner had applied for money for a short film scheme through. Uh, at the time, it was Scottish Green, British Green, and STV did this thing called Prime Cuts, and we applied for it and we were successful in the application. I'd written the script and I'd nominated my husband to be the director because yeah. he used to make well he was making short films at the time, and when I met him, he was um, doing shorts. And that's how we kind of got together in the first place. And it was, you know, it was just, you know, so I had this company um, and I thought, well, why not? And I did try for a very, very long time to just do it in a very conventional way. You go to a broadcaster, pitch ideas, you go and try and get, yeah. you know, public funding or, you know, any kind of funding to make your films. To, because it's always going to be a patchwork of bits and pieces of money here and there to get anything made. And... I was just continually getting knocked back, knocked back, knocked back. So I ended up in Berlin, went there. And while I was there, adoption to script. Um, I tried to get a meeting at Scottish Green to get development funding. And in the eight weeks they had, they never, they never read the script. I had the meeting, they hadn't read it. And I'd come all the way from Berlin and I was just, yeah. I just went home greeting. I just thought, what is the point? Yeah, sure. What is the point? You know, I'm never going to get any support here. And that was a trigger. That for me, that day I went and after eight weeks of cajoling them, read my script and come from Berlin, I've got all this German money wanting to come in to this film and they couldn't even read the script. So I thought, F, uh, F you, um, um, I'm out of here. And I went back to Berlin, I wrote the script for my first feature in four weeks and I came back and I thought, I'm not applying for any money, I'm just going to shoot it using what I've got. And that was a three-chip camcorder and an NLE edit suite with a decent bit of edit software. And that was the start of it all. And that's how, accidentally, because I had no idea that I was making the first um, digital feature film in the UK. Yeah. But I was. And um, and because of the, the critical acclaim, not just, not for being, any, you know, I would have shot it in sellotape to get it made, <laughs> to be honest sure. with you. But, um, but in the end up, the reaction to the film just as, 
piece of filmmaking as a bit of storytelling and um, the performances. Um, the acclaim was amazing. I mean, I did the festival circuit for about two years. Mm-hmm. I won tons of awards with this. Never pursued distribution because I made it as a calling card. I never sure. made. I never made it to like try and fill my boots. I just thought, no, it's good enough yeah, that I got yeah. it made. Let me try and parlay this into something bigger, which was solid air. Solid air. Aye. So, um, I mean, it's interesting. It sounds like you were going the way that other people are going. You make a film that is your calling card, but like you say, Peter's short film. Had, yeah. Hopefully, you know, it took a longer time, but worked for him. And then you got to uh, Solid Air in 2003, and then that was like having the rug pulled from out from under you with, aye, this, aye. with what happened there. And that's was when you decided I'm going to make this on my own, I'm going to make this films differently and make it on my own. Well, no, that was it was a gradual process. Um, I suppose, in a way, when the Scottish Arts Council said to me, We're not letting you make a film, that really concentrated my mind because yeah. I thought, Well, what can I do as an alternative? And that led me to think about, well, the different ways of telling a story. I had to come up with different ways of exploring a narrative here. And that's exactly what I did. I sat down for a long time thinking, right, if this is going to be a website, then I can't do it as a linear narrative in the same way. So it really made me concentrate. And, well, A, why are we telling these stories? And how are we telling these stories? And somewhere between the two, you know, thinking about it, I arrived at the solution that became the Devil's Plantation. Mm-hmm. And because I arrived at that solution, I thought, have I got the beginnings of a template here? Can I use this in, in a way that could be applied to other stories? And, and and I'm going to continue down this road. I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on at the moment, one of which is very local, and it's going to be... you know, it's, Obviously, it's going to be very different because it's a completely different story. Because... Sure. Um, because, you know, at the, at the beginning of every project, at the end of every project, rather, you're back at square one when you start another one. The other project, which is much, much more ambitious, which I'm going to try and get back into live action with, right. is the Tom and Paul Gar story. Right. Um, the CIA the story. CIA, no, and I'm going to do it in America. Fantastic. And I'm going to have a cast, and I'm going to try and get back. But I'm going to still apply the storytelling methods that have evolved Fantastic. in the course of these and hopefully my next film. That's great to hear, I must say. Uh, well, me, I think that's a great place to leave it, so thanks very much for talking to us. Oh, it's been a total pleasure. I don't get out much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got far to go about No, I'm just around the corner. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, we'll be back soon uh, with someone completely different. Cheers. <laughs>